I want to start by asking you to think about the person who you most admire, the individual maybe who you most love, whoever that is whose opinion is of highest priority to you. And I want you to imagine what it would be like if that person said to you, but publicly where others could hear, they looked at you and said, you make me sick whenever I look at you I want to throw up. That seems a little bit harsh. You think a statement like that is unnecessary or maybe a little overly direct? Well, when it's the message of the Lord Jesus to a church that he loves, it is neither unnecessary nor is it too direct. It is exactly as harsh as it needs to be. Last week, we looked at a church, the the church at Philadelphia, and saw how its worship and its faithfulness and, and trust made it a church that Jesus praises. The message to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, teaches us that when a church has thoughts of self sufficiency or expressions of self satisfaction, That's a church that makes Jesus sick. Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich and white raiment that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This text As I said, it represents the seventh of seven messages from the Lord Jesus to these specific churches in Asia Minor. Two of those churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, received only praise from the Lord Jesus. Most of them received both praise for what they did well and warnings for their shortcomings. Laodicea stands alone as the sole church for which Jesus had nothing positive to say. 
This is also possibly the best known of the seven messages to the churches, but it's not, I think, best known in a a good way. The message of Laodicea contains verses within it which are frequently misunderstood and frightfully misused. Specifically, I'm talking about the message in verses 15 and 16 where Jesus says, I wish that you were either hot or cold. And also what Jesus says down in verse 20 when he says, I stand at the door and knock. We hear more about those things and probably understand them less than probably any other area of these two chapters. It might take a little bit of deprogramming this morning to to sort of get the meaning of the message clearly. It also, frankly, the message to the Laodiceans takes a bit of a history lesson. We've seen before the way that Jesus crafts these messages to the seven churches, often he makes a connection between that church and the community in which that church resides. So uh, a few examples, the city of Pergamos had that massive throne-like temple to Zeus and Jesus wrote to the church at Pergamos and said, you are where the seat of Satan is. Thyatira was well known for its bronze production and Jesus introduces himself as the one whose feet were like fine bronze. In Philadelphia, we saw last week, they they had frequent earthquakes and many of the citizens had abandoned the city. And in the message to Philadelphia, Jesus assures them, there's the day coming when you are going to be pillars in the city of God and you won't have to leave. This final message to Laodicea, perhaps more so than all the others, has to be understood in the context and history of the city itself. And so let me begin by telling you a little bit about Laodicea so that maybe you can imagine what it would be like to be a resident of that city and a member of this church as the message to this church was was read out loud in a worship service for the first time. Laodicea is one of three cities that sits in this area called the Lycus Valley. Heropolis was up north of them. And Colossae, the church that received the letter to the Colossians, was to the southeast of them. You can actually see their their close association between those three cities in Colossians 4.13, where Paul's writing to the church at Colossae and he tells them to greet the saints in Heropolis and Laodicea. Just like you would expect nowadays to find a, a thriving city anywhere where there's, you know, in the U.S., a couple of interstates intersect, you usually expect to see a, a thriving city there. Laodicea benefited from being the ending point of three major trade routes, allowing Laodicea to be the wealthiest city in the region. In fact, it was so wealthy that in 60 AD, about 30 years before they got this letter, 35 years or so, the city had suffered a devastating earthquake. They decided, well, we're just going to build back better. You may have recalled that um, other cities who, who uh, were destroyed were, were rebuilt using funds from the Roman emperor. The Roman Empire essentially had its own kind of FEMA, um, uh, you know, emergency management agency. 
But when the funds were sent to Laodicea, their reaction was, nah, we're good. They sent the money back. And in their new city plans, they actually built larger, even including a massive 900-foot-long amphitheater. So it's no surprise then that Laodicea had also developed this banking district for the whole region. People as far away as Rome were using Laodicea as a, as a means of credit and also a place to exchange gold currency. The city thrived agriculturally as well. On the, the hillsides surrounding them as they're in this valley, shepherds raised sheep that had uh, excellent wool. If you've ever heard someone say, well, there's the occasional black sheep. Well, in Laodicea, it wasn't occasional. They were all black sheep known for this dark black soft wool. The medical industry in Laodicea was also famous. Specifically, they had developed this product called Phrygian powder, and they used it to make a salve, a kind of ointment that they would treat um, problems with ears, but more often uh, issues with ailing eyes. If there was any weakness at all in the city of Laodicea, it was their water supply. Now, if you've got one of those maps that were on the back table, and it's not vital that you do, you can see that the Lycus River actually runs within walking distance of Laodicea, but the area that was close to them had been silted in, and it was like heavy with contaminants. And so there were two options for Laodicea to get their water. Up north in Heropolis, there were hot springs in Heropolis, and people would actually come to Heropolis to bathe in them for healing. There was about a six-mile aqueduct which brought those hot springs from Heropolis, but by the time you got that hot water from Heropolis to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. The other option was to the east, a little southeast, Colossae. Colossae was built at the edge of this 8,000-foot mountain, which offered cold water to the residents of Colossae as it came flowing down the mountain. And there was an aqueduct about 11 miles long that brought cold mountain water from Colossae. The problem being, after it travels 11 miles, the cold water is not cold anymore. Now, I know that's a lot of historical background, but if your mind is in the text, you're probably already connecting some of the dots to what Jesus is telling them in, in a way that makes the message more clear to us. It's, that's very important background for us to have a full understanding of Jesus' message. So let's look at this message and see first off who Jesus is. In verse 14, under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus says he's the amen. That's not saying that he's what you shout out during a sermon. Um, the word amen means so be it or may it be so on the occasions when someone does shout amen during a sermon, I think we, we intend that as essentially saying, that's true. We, we validate uh, the, and testify of the truth of what's said. You need to know this 
Because Jesus is about to say next that he's the faithful and true witness. So in one way, Jesus is truth, but the word amen is, is saying that Jesus is also the, the affirmation of the truth. To sort of make the distinction there, let's say that, that God makes a promise, that promise would be true simply from the fact that it came from God. He cannot, nor would he ever want to, speak untruth. And so his promise would be true. But Jesus being the amen means he is the, the affirmation of truth. We know, we confirm that God's promise is true because we see that promise affirmed in the person and work of Jesus. This is why when Jesus proclaims himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, he is also the affirmation, the confirmation of all things that are true. So not only is is Jesus true, but he's also the confirmation of all that's true. Jesus himself is the amen. He is the only means of knowing the truthfulness of truth. He's the standard to which all things claiming to be true are examined. And only by Jesus, who is the truth, will we know the truth. Here's how Paul says it in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He says, all of the promises of God find their yes in him, And so through him, we declare our amens to God for his glory. Jesus is the amen. He is the affirmation of all truth. He's also, he says in verse 14, the the faithful and true witness. And that is a sharp contrast to what we're about to see in the church at Laodicea. Every Christian is called to be a witness for Jesus Christ, offering a witness that is reliable, a witness that is accurate. But the Laodicean Christians were promoting this testimony of Jesus that was unreliable. It was inaccurate based on their very way of thinking about themselves. From here on, moving through the book of Revelation, we're going to see one of the characteristics of a faithful and true witness is that they are faithful and true even to the point of death. The witness, uh, the witnesses of Jesus through Revelation are generally martyred for their testimony. In Pergamos, there was a man named Antipas who we've already seen was <coughs> called Jesus's faithful martyr. And later, There'll be two witnesses in Revelation 11 who are going to be killed for their testimony of Jesus. And in Revelation 20, verse 4, John sees the souls of those who were beheaded for their witness of Jesus. Within the church at Laodicea, Christians were not maintaining their witness for Jesus out of fear of either ridicule or persecution or death. (coughs) Sorry, but Jesus is the faithful and true witness who professed the truth of God even to the point of the death of the cross. He's the faithful and true witness. Now, tuck those away in your mind for a second. Listen to what Jesus says next in verse 14. He is the beginning of the creation of God. This little phrase has been misused by those who want to argue that Jesus was the 
first thing that God created. Like he was the very best angel. And they'll point to this and they'll say, see there it says he's the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is the beginning of all creation in the sense that he is the origin of all creation. Jesus is the source of creation. Jesus, the son of God, is the uncreated creator. This word translated as beginning here is the word arche, and it speaks to the idea of preeminence. The, an archangel, for example, is a preeminent. It's the highest ranking angel in the gospels. A, a chief priest was an arche priest. It, it's talking about rank and authority. The NIV of all translations does great with this text by telling us that this means Jesus is the ruler of the creation of God. This isn't incidental to the message. All three of those statements of introduction by Jesus in verse 14 are meant to get to his point right away. Jesus is the amen. He is the affirmation of truth. And the church that he's addressing here has not been affirming his truth. Jesus is the true and faithful witness. But this church has abandoned their witness of him. Jesus is the uncreated creator and they're just hanging out in his creation like they owe him nothing and need nothing from him. Every word of Jesus' introduction in verse 14 is intended to say, listen up, I am nothing like you and you are certainly nothing like me. That's what Jesus is. Look at verse 15 and 16 and 17 and see what Jesus sees. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I would that you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. As with all churches and all people in all places, Jesus is the sovereign, all-knowing God. He knows our works. And it's become absolutely evident in these messages to these seven churches that Jesus not only knows what we're doing, he also knows what we're thinking as we do them. He's the perfect judge of what we're doing and why we're doing it. The church at Laodicea doesn't seem to have any works to commend. The Lord begins his analysis with an abrasive message. You're lukewarm and I won't have it. He insists that they have to either be hot or cold. More often than not, these verses are misunderstood as Jesus saying, well, I wish you were hot. Like, I wish you were on fire for me. Or I wish you were ice cold, you know, which would be the opposite, like just completely opposed to me. Like if you're not going to be on fire and enthusiastic for me, at the very least, be opposed to me. Be honest in what you're doing. Be honest enough not to pretend anymore. But do you really think that the Lord is going to speak to his people and give them the option of being on fire for him, but that even being ice cold in opposition would also be okay. That would be preferable to him. That hardly makes sense. 
Instead, remembering the situation of this city is going to tell us that the church in Laodicea was a lot like the city's water supply. You know, the water supply where they had to either pipe in hot water from Heropolis or cold water from Colossae, and either way, it's just lukewarm by the time it gets to the city. I think the message of Jesus is as simple as this. I want you to be like the hot water from Heropolis, which is good for healing and people use it to be healed. Or I want you to be like the the cold water from Colossae, which is good for refreshment. But you're neither one. And the reason you're neither one is the same as the reason why the, the city that you live in has lukewarm water, because you are distant and disconnected from the source. The church of the Lord Jesus, look, we are supposed to be spiritually refreshing for those who are thirsty. We're supposed to be spiritually healing for those who are sick. But as long as the Lord's church is distant and disconnected from the Lord himself, we will never accomplish our purpose. Instead, they're lukewarm, Jesus says. You make me sick. He says, if it doesn't change, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know that word spew is more graphic than it sounds, right? It's literally the word for vomit. I don't know how much more graphic of a message you could get. I mean, it, would, it puts a, a new twist on the phrase, a wretch like me, right? Jesus is nauseated by a lukewarm church that is distant and disconnected from him. Now, if someone you loved looked at you and said, you make me sick, your reaction would be, why would you say that? Well, Jesus is going to answer. Jesus really does love this church, and he's not coming to insult them for no good reason. He's offering a, a blunt analysis, an honest assessment, so they'll see themselves for who they really are. Because right now, they don't seem to see themselves as they really are. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see how they see themselves in contrast to how Christ sees them? They look around at their own self-reliance and self-assurance and self-confidence and self-satisfaction. Like, we're, we're rich. I mean, we're rich enough that it wasn't even a generation ago that when an earthquake destroyed the city, we sent the check back to Roman Empire FEMA and said, nah, we're good, we'll do this ourselves. And from an earthly perspective, they are Rich, But from a spiritual perspective, the church at Laodicea is poor. It has been blinded by its wealth and self-reliance. It's forgotten that it is reliant on God alone. There's an interesting dichotomy here that they, they think they're rich, but Jesus says they're poor. And if you remember 
A church earlier in these chapters was poor and Jesus said they were rich. You can look back at Revelation 2, verse 7. Jesus told the church at Smyrna, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. It seems obvious that the church at Smyrna was financially poor, but spiritually rich. And the church at Laodicea was financially prosperous, but spiritually broke. So it seems to me it would be unwise to suggest that there is a correlation between a a church's financial sheet and a church's spiritual condition. A church's finances are a practical matter. They are things that we have to consider. But this poor little rich church in Laodicea didn't earn any spiritual blessings by keeping their financial balance sheet in the black. Instead, by putting this focus on material wealth, Jesus said they're on the verge of spiritual bankruptcy. The lesson here has nothing to do with how much money a church has in its bank account. The question is of whether or not a church has forgotten that they are eternally and completely reliant on the Lord Jesus, who has no need of our riches and would never be inhibited by our poverty. The church at Laodicea had become financially self-confident and what they earned by that accomplishment is an ignorance of what is most important. Jesus says, you think you don't need anything. And in reality, you don't know that you're wretched. The root word there is the idea of distressed, afflicted. You are in trouble. You're miserable. The word there literally means pitiful or pitiable. You're poor, not just in wealth, but this word means extreme poverty. And this extreme poverty is a spiritual poverty. You're blind. He says, you, the church at Laodicea did not see themselves as Jesus sees them. And he says, you're also naked. The city's famous black wool isn't going to cover the way they're exposed and objects of shame in the eyes of Jesus. So let's just make some practical application to modern time here. Because not just in this text, but also all through Revelation 2 and 3, these seven messages to the seven churches, we learn that a church is inclined to pick up the characteristics of the place in which it resides. Really, the church ought to influence the world, but in reality, the world often influences the Lord's churches. And so, can you think of any place that experiences what Laodicea experiences? Some place that is plagued with affluenza? Maybe a country that is self-confident and self-reliant and well-dressed and economically exalted and advanced in medicine, but probably worse off than they know? If we learn from these chapters, churches are apparently not blessed with a great deal of self-awareness. But when a church is confronted with this blunt message of disgust from Jesus, one would hope that a church would receive it gratefully. 
So we've seen who Jesus is and what Jesus sees. Now, look at what Jesus commands in verses 18 and 19. Criticism, criticism is not constructive criticism if it doesn't move forward in a way that's going to actually fix the problem. It's not in the nature of the Lord Jesus to merely complain and not offer a constructive means to improve. And so verse 18, he says, I counsel you. This is his guidance. I counsel you. Buy of me gold tried in fire that you may be rich and white raiment that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness does not appear and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In words that go straight to the heart of the city of Laodicea, Jesus addresses their needs in a way that would have hit home to everyone. Some members of the church that were listening to this message be read in the assembly for the first time. Some of them would have been a part of Laodicea's banking industry. Some members were, were shepherds or weavers who had uh, produced that black wool. Some of them were, were producing that Phrygian powder that was made into the eye ointment. Jesus, he is sick of their smug self-satisfaction and addresses all of them in verse 18. Essentially, all you bankers know your earthly treasure is worthless unless it's spent in the pursuit of the glory of God. You need to come to Jesus and find where the riches are real, riches that are tried in fire, that there's no impurities, because only through him will you have real riches. All of you producing that black wool, you can think you're self-sufficient selling that clothing to others, but what you need is total dependence on Christ to be clothed in his perfect white righteousness. Otherwise, you're exposed in all of your nauseating nothingness. And all of you members who are making bank selling that, that eye salve, You might want to use some of it on yourselves, Jesus said. Something's wrong with your vision. You don't see yourself the way I see you. The whole church needs his riches and his righteousness and his remedy. But here's the thing. It's available to them. Jesus is not demanding something that he's not willing to supply. This frank message is not intended to offend the church it's a measure of his love for the church and so the tone of this message to Laodicea takes a sharp turn here why would Jesus talk to them the way that he's been talking to them he explains in verse 19 as many as I love I rebuke and chasten be zealous therefore and repent If we've been paying attention to the Apostle John and his letters, we know why Jesus has been saying these things. Truth and love are inseparable from each other. These words that Jesus uses when he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, those words are important. The word rebuke is the Greek word alegko, and it means to expose, to reprove, or to convict It's a kind of harsh word by itself, but it's not by itself. The word chasten is the Greek word pediuo, and it speaks of the idea of disciplining a child or training a child. I think Jesus is actually paraphrasing a proverb here. Proverbs 3.12 
says, whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just like a father would for a son in whom he delights. The goal here, Jesus says, is to expose or or convict, convince children of God of their sin and then discipline, train them to do right. Listen, you know that if you're a good parent, you might overlook the misbehavior of other people's children, but you don't overlook the misbehavior of your own. A child who is not disciplined by their parent is a child who's not loved by their parents. A a Christian who is not disciplined by the Lord Jesus is someone who is not loved by the Lord Jesus. And, And thankfully, that is not even a possibility. Jesus is clear here. No, if I if I love you, I'm gonna fix this. I think we could also add here a member that is not disciplined by the church is a member who is not being loved by the church. This rebuke, this chastening or or conviction and discipline, that is a sign of love from the Lord Jesus for this church. This messed up, self-satisfied, smug, lukewarm, nauseating assembly Jesus loves it. Don't for a minute think as we go through Revelation 2 and 3 and we get convicted in those areas in which we're failing, don't for a moment think that that means, oh, well, Jesus probably doesn't love us then. If we are getting convicted and corrected, it is because Jesus loves us. As many as he loves, he rebukes and chastens. So what's left for us to do in verse 19? Be zealous and repent, Jesus says. Or be enthusiastic, be committed, have a, have a changed mind. We're not to be self-satisfied or self-sufficient or self-reliant. We are to trust him for all things, in all ways, at all times, all for his glory. So we've seen who Jesus is and and what Jesus has said and what he's commanded. Now look at what he promises in verses 20 through 22. Here's where we get another of those often misused verses. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. This this gets used like it is an evangelistic verse, like it exists to be inserted at the end of a a gospel tract or the the wind down to an invitation right before you sing 73 stanzas of just as I am. Right? Jesus is knocking, won't you answer? He's at the door. Are you going to turn him away? Jesus is calling. He's pleading for you to open the door. Won't you just open the door of your heart and let him in your life? Listen, this does say that Jesus is at the door and he's knocking and he's speaking, but Jesus is speaking to the church that he loves in the context of some pretty harsh rebuke at the same time. Right? He's told them, you're like the water in this town. You're lukewarm and gross. 
I'd rather you be cold like the refreshing water from Colossier and want you to be hot like the, the healing water from Heropolis. And the problem is distance, right? What this church needs is to be close and connected to the source from whom all blessings flow, the Lord Jesus himself. In scripture, there's, there's really not much that's more symbolic of connection in scripture than table fellowship, right? Sharing a meal. That's why there's a Lord's Supper to celebrate that connection and reliance on him until the day Jesus says, I I will eat it new with you in my kingdom. We will have table fellowship with him, that close connection forever. So in verse 20, Jesus is telling this distant and disconnected church the only cure for you is to be intimately connected with me, right? To draw closer to the source. And I'm here for that. I'm as close as your front door. I am ready to come in and sit down and share a meal with you. That's what verse 20 is all about. Verse 21, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. The word overcome here is the Greek word for victory. If you achieve victory, I'll let you sit with me in my throne, even as I achieved victory and am sat with the father in his throne. By the way, we're going to find out in Revelation 22, if we ever get there, He is still on that throne. Revelation 22, John calls it the throne of God and of the Lamb. Jesus says we will reign with him. That is the theme of this book and it is the theme of all the New Testament. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12 that if we suffer, we'll also reign with him. In Romans 8.17, he calls us joint heirs with Christ. There's such unity with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and with believers united with them that we've been adopted into the royal family. But don't go thinking too highly of yourself just yet. If you overcome, if you achieve victory, you'll sit with me in my throne, Jesus says. It is for his glory, not ours. His victory too, for that matter. Paul uses that same word for overcome or victory in Romans 8.37 when when it's translated conquerors. It says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The victory is his and he's allowed us to benefit from it for his love. The throne is his and he allows us to benefit from it for his love. We'll understand, I think, more details of how it is that we'll reign with him better in glory, I'm sure. But I'll just point out that the very next chapter, chapter 4, is going to picture that heavenly throne room. And there are 24 elders and 24 thrones and 24 crowns. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, there's no glory for them. All of them are on their knees before Jesus saying, you are worthy, O Lord, for you have created all things. You are worthy of all glory and honor and power. 
we, we, we have to wrap up, but I just want to leave you this, with this. What a journey this text is for this church at Laodicea. From the prospect of being messianic vomit to the prospect of dining with him eternally. From being nauseating to him to reigning with him. If these messages to the churches in in Revelation 2 and 3 have been hard on us, or maybe it's just hard on me, but I think you've followed along. If you found it hard, good. The Lord convicts and he corrects those who he loves. But then what? What do we do about it? Well, our text says here, be zealous, be earnest, be enthusiastic. Repent, have a changed mind. Don't put up some mental or spiritual roadblock with the aim of resisting the Holy Spirit and the message that we receive through his word. Because throughout these chapters, there are promises the Lord has made to those who have overcome, that overcome by faith in him and obedience to him. Every one of these churches has a promise for those who overcome. We've seen things like, You'll get to eat of the tree of life. You'll receive a crown of life. You won't be hurt by the second death. He's promised hidden manna in chapter 2, verse 17, as well as a new name. He's promised white clothes of his own righteousness, his willingness to confess us before the Father, to be a pillar in God's temple, to never have to leave, to be labeled with his ownership, labeled with his love, and now to sit with him eternally in his kingdom. Whatever situation we face is not a hopeless situation. The Lord loves us. The Lord loves us so much that he insists on calling us to something better than we are now. And he promises to those who are faithful and who overcome, there's the blessing of unity with him for all eternity.